Design can be found in everything we touch, see and hear. I'm Luke Irwin and I've always been fascinated by making the sometimes rarefied world of design more accessible. This recording is from the By Design talk series created by the Sir John Soane Museum in partnership with me. These talks invite some of the most innovative and well-respected designers of our generation to discuss one everyday object that has inspired their design practice. The interviewers for the series are Will Gompertz, arts editor at the BBC, and Alice Rawsthorn, design writer and critic. These intimate conversations take place in the candlelit dining room of Sir John Soane's museum, bringing to life Soane's long-held ambition to create an academy of the arts where all forms of design can be celebrated. Today we hear Martino Gamper in conversation with Alice Rawsthorn. Martino's multifaceted practice spans design and art venues, engaging in a variety of projects from exhibition design, interior design, one-off commissions, and the design of mass-produced products for the international furniture industry. So I think I'm going to begin maybe by saying a little bit about Martino, and you may feel free to contradict me if I make any um, mistakes, just to put his work in context before we talk about the object he's chosen. He was born in Moran, the spa town in the Italian Tyrol, and at 14 he began what was intended to be a five-year apprenticeship in carpentry and joinery. Um, he then studied design in Vienna and then in Italy, where he worked in Milan for for one of his teachers, Matteo Thun, who had a very successful design consultancy there. Um, great friends, though they still are. Um, working there for a while was enough to convince Martino that he didn't want to work in the commercial design world. He wanted to do something different. So he came to London and studied at the Royal College of Art, where he taught after he graduated. As he established an independent design practice here in London, he experimented relentlessly in those early years as he's continued to do throughout his career, trying lots of different media, lots of different ways of working, and we'll come on to that later, and has developed a really extraordinary practice that reflects his character and his spirit perfectly, is self-indulgent to the degree that um, it reflects exactly how he wants to spend his time and what he wants to do with his working life, but enables him to work on many different scales with different materials and techniques, making um, industrial products for mass production, exquisitely finished, handmade, um, bespoke works for special commissions, um, experiments with art galleries and museums museums and social experiments, which we'll also talk about later. So he has an incredible career and a very singular and idiosyncratic practice. But we're going to begin with what the Soane Museum asked Martino to do, which is to choose one object. It didn't have to be anything from the Soane Museum, but obligingly he chose something from their collection. And what is it? So I thought... Um, <coughs> What more does a museum, you know, of, of this kind of um, amazing collection uh, need to display work? It's actually a plinth. It's a pedestal. It's something to put work on. And uh, as far as I've done research, uh, Sir John Son spent a great amount of time as well pairing particular work to particular plinths, particular pedestals. And to me as a designer, I think the pedestal is a, is a curious and interesting object because it somehow serves for someone else's work. You create something functional, in a sense, but still together it creates a new, a new work. With, with an artwork on top, it creates something, something new that's kind of a symbiosis of, of two pieces of work. For me, also, planes are interesting because they, they somehow tell, there's a lot about the, the, time, the time, the type of fashion, the type of architecture, the type of context that we live in. Um, and I think they've been slightly forgotten as well. You know, we, we kind of, even in the British Museum, um, you see a lot of white painted MDF plinth and they're not doing quite justice to the artwork, I think. So we kind of forgotten a little bit, also as designers, I think, you know, to, or we kind of agreed somehow to accept the white MDF plinth as a neutral object. But in, in reality, it is not really neutral. It's, you know, it's, a, it's also a statement. It's a statement that maybe we don't care so much about what the work stands on. So I, I've, I've worked on many exhibitions on displaying architecture, displaying, displaying art, um, collaborating with many artists, including my wife as well, Frances, that we talk about a little bit later, so images as well in the, in the handout. 
where we kind of work together trying to understand what, how would the planes look like uh, for figurative work, for, for a sculptor, and so on. So for me, yeah, the planes is a, is a very curious kind of um, piece of furniture, in a sense, because it is a piece of furniture. For me, they're yeah, interesting. Um, from a design point of view. And why did you choose this particular plinth? Because there was a range of plinths for you to choose from in the Sony Museum collection. I wanted to choose something that really showed that how plinths was actually used. So it wasn't like this pristine, beautiful kind of marble plinth. This is quite well, a battered plinth. It was battered, you know. It's kind of um, fake marble, like faux marble. Can't quite see it anymore. It has, it's been kind of used. And I think that's also something that I'm interested in my work. How does it work somehow age? How does it, how is it work seen in, in 50 and 100 years potentially? How does it kind of change as well its use? I guess this would have been the MDF plinths of the time, I guess in 19th century. It had a bit of a ornament, the bottom and the top, quite simply materials, you know, wood. And probably was the, um, the plinths that didn't stick out too much, didn't want to necessarily scream loud but it, it had this function in its place. And I guess it'd be interesting to see what the white MDF plinths does in 100 years time in a museum. Indeed, and of course plinths are deeply contentious, particularly when it comes to the display of design. Um, I mean, less so now, but sort of 15 or so years ago, there was a feisty debate as to whether industrial objects in particular should ever be put on plinths, because this was, seen as a sort of rather cliched attempt to aggrandize them when actually it diminished them by insinuating that they needed aggrandizing in yeah. the the first place so how do you feel about that i personally don't like to display my work on plinth um be it one-off pieces be it in museums for me the, if it's a table it's a chair it should have its own gravitas to be able to stand by it on its own and kind of talk about its presence i do understand the museum tried to create a kind of scenario around especially around furniture and they try to create rooms and they try to create kind of this kind of chambres and saloons and where but, and also maybe a functional element so as soon as a table stands on the or chair stands on the floor then obviously people want to sit down as we can see here nicely nicely solve the problem with some thistles and uh, so there is also that kind of fun functional aspects of how they display furniture in a, in a museum context but I think um, furniture shouldn't need a plinth to sit on I mean, it's kind of a piece of furniture on a piece of furniture. In, indeed. I mean, it's actually doubly ridiculous for furniture as opposed to, I don't know, a digital device digital or device. whatever. But can you think of an example where that has worked? Maybe not. <laughs> mm, I'm just going through my mind to all the different museums I've been to lately. Well, or an example of particularly beautiful plants. I mean, for, for me, and I'm not just saying this because you're sitting next to me and could biff me, but um, Francis Aprichard, your partner, has an exhibition at the moment at the Barbican Curve Gallery, and the plinths and display devices in that exhibition, I think, are incredibly beautiful. I thought you'd design the plinths, but you told me that actually Franny had herself. Um, I mean, can you think of another example where plinths really have played an important role in display? I guess actually one of my interests, early interests, unconsciously in a way, <laughs> I mean, plinths and museum, museums and display was Carlos Scarpa's uh, museum in uh, Verona, the Castelvecchio. It's um, a civic museum displaying mostly from medieval times or a bit earlier to the 19th century art. And I went there as a, on a school trip at the age of eight or nine and I had completely forgotten about it and years later when I was at college I looked at the book and I, and I kind of, it took me back and I realised I had been in this space and I had seen all, all these different details and it really somehow inspired me to, to go back and look at this work and I think Scarpa is definitely one of those people who heavily influenced many people in the exhibition, you know, in, in, in the museum's world because he really created for each individual object a specific kind of hanging and specific piece of, of uh, architecture. Uh, also, some more people in Milan, Pipi uh, Pierre, four, four architects who designed the um, Castello Sforzesco, the Civic Museum again in the, in the castle in Milan. Have a beautiful, beautiful display. If you're ever in Milan, you should go and see it. Um, really kind of um, beautiful vitrines and really playing with the just the position of the artwork. Um, well, um, 
Well, that's some brilliant yeah. examples. And obviously, exhibitions and display have been a very important part of your work throughout your career. But let's loop back to the beginning. And as I explained, you actually began working with wood to become a, a craftsperson. So why did that command your attention initially? And how did you then evolve towards design? It was made clear to me that I shouldn't continue for further, further, further studies at, at uh, the high school level. <laughs> it was made redundant. <laughs> no, not quite as bad as that. But um, but you thought I, you were edging I, towards the I precipice. Was, I was. I found it quite difficult to concentrate in school and to to concentrate my energy into or focus my energy into into one particular learning. So I, I decided I wanted to do an apprenticeship. And uh, the interesting thing is that the apprenticeship I did. The program still exists where you, you work with a master craftsman and but once a week you go to school, in a vocational school. So that means that you're not completely dropping out of school. Uh, it means that you have a further education and after five years you do an exam. And with that exam you can actually go and study, not everywhere but in certain art schools and in certain schools you can go, go and do a further and then go to university basically. They call it an alternative kind of way of coming to a degree. So that enabled me to, to learn really a, a craft from, it, from its beginning and, 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 f and kind of channel my, my energy that I obviously had. And I was very interested in, in, in learning and, and uh, pushing also the boundaries in a way. And did it address that issue? I mean, was it the right decision for you at the time? Yeah, absolutely, I think. I, I don't know what I would have done in school or, uh, I don't know, I think I would have just gone from from one school to the next one and probably, I don't know. Yeah, and it really helped me. It really helped me understanding that if I could learn for myself in a different way, I would actually, you know, learn. And uh, I guess it wasn't the, the school the problem, it was only the way they were trying to teach me, I guess. I really loved going to school then once a week because it was, it was exciting. It was things I wanted to learn. And so after these five years, I did an, I did an exam. Basically, you have, to do, you have to design a piece, you have to draft it, you have to make it totally kind of independent and I made kind of an interesting it was the 80s so I made a kind of a, a Memphis <laughs> I knew that was <laughs> kind of a postmodern piece of it still hangs my mom's my mom's my mom's <laughs> circulate photographs uh, yeah kind of wide wood you know kind of you know maple kind of bleached wood triangles and yeah yeah so but I think I guess this was for me the beginning to realize that actually I could not only make, I could also design something and this kind of thinking and making is something that I really enjoy in my practice that you can have ideas but you can also realize them and you can push boundaries on both sides. You can develop conceptual ideas but at the same time you can also kind of push the craft and you can push the making and together um, create something quite exciting and hopefully new. What was unusual at the time? I mean, obviously now making is a huge phenomenon, making, fixing, repairing, um, and using craft and artisanal techniques. But um, during this period, which was what, sort of over 20 years ago, it was very unusual for a designer. I mean, you were on the design products course, yeah. course at the Royal College of Art. I mean, in, it was the making of your career that you literally could make what you wanted to do rather than waiting for manufacturers to agree to <coughs> produce it. It gave you a capacity for expressiveness and freedom that would have been denied you otherwise. But it was an unusual path at the time. Yeah, I guess I guess the, the late 90s was all about, especially in the design world or furniture world, about working with the right companies. And if you hadn't worked with Capellini at the time, you were kind of a loser. But um, yeah, it took, a, it took a while, but I think I was lucky that I kind of was in a company of the right people, also wanted to make and, and I had early on clients who wanted me to kind of create work for them. And maybe it was a very humble kind of beginning, you know, where you just make a simple shelf for someone. But it was still a kind of beginning to understand that I could, again, use those ideas and, and, and make them. And also, for me, I got a great satisfaction of, of making something for even if it's a one-off piece for a client that then I see in a completed kind of completed work and, and hopefully see a satisfied customer. I mean, it's something very, very beautiful in a sense. So did you have a sense of how your career was going to develop at that time? Or 
were you sort of making it up as you went along? Post the Milan experience, uh, working for Mattia Turner's studio, I realized I wanted to work not for not not less for industry, but for very specific, only for a few kind of specific kind of industries, not just for everyone across the field. Because Matteo Studios really designed everything from a toilet seat to to roof tiles, and it was quite frustrating sometimes because it was like sixty percent of the work we did was for nothing. I mean, it just was never made, never made it into production. So it was maybe even seventy percent. So it was a very kind of uh, small amount of kind of of pieces actually made it into into the world, and that was for me very frustrating in a sense. And I also once I left TRC, I realized I wanted to make a few things few things that um, would probably keep in the world and would probably be shared in the world rather than many objects that probably disappear. That was somehow a decision that I took. But the rest of it was pretty much making it up as, he, as I went along and um, also because in t early 2000, I graduated in 2000 from Royal College, I mean there wasn't a sense of what we now call a design gallery world or design art, whatever you want to call it, that kind of new. Uh, genre of kind of galleries, they weren't around. I mean, I have here one of my galleries from Milan, Nina, with whom I started working in 2007. She was kind of the first person who took on a young designer in 2007, before she was a, a design gallery who worked mostly in vintage. So even there wasn't even a notion so much, I think, early 2000. I mean, there was a couple of people in London, David Gill, and maybe that was probably, probably who actually worked with contemporary, and in, in France, of course, Arte Creative has got a much bigger tradition. But there wasn't really a, a kind of a market there. But what, there wasn't a market, but what there was was an incredible community of designers, makers, writers, musicians, artists who were young and ambitious and dynamic and experimental in London. You were very much at the heart of that. I mean, I remember meeting you at the time and you would always have an obsessive idea or enthusiasm, whether it was celebrating the World Cup by making lights out of footballs or corners, I remember, were a particular obsession at the, the time. And you had incredible um, sort of experimental food events where you'd make everything, the food, the things you'd eat the food off, the tools that you cook the food with, you know, circular saws, I remember, were prime among them. So it was a very performative thing. And again, sort of performative approaches to food are relatively common now, but they weren't then. So it was very exciting, just really fun and improvisational. Yeah, and, and it was always done with, in collaboration with other people, you know, the food event at Tatoya Capello was done with three friends of mine, Maki Suzuki, Kaiser Stoll and uh, Alex Rich. Actually not far from here in uh, Hatton Gardens, in, in a place called Hat Hat on Wall Bar, just down the road from here. And it kind of also came out of necessity somehow, because I think London at that time didn't really have that many there was good food in London, but it wasn't as widespread as probably now, and it probably wasn't as diverse as, diverse as now. So we missed it, and obviously we were just out of college, we couldn't really afford to go fine dining every, every other day. So it was a necessity that we wanted to have nice food, we wanted to have something that was interesting and maybe experimental as well. But at the same time, we, we missed kind of this social interaction that I guess I really missed coming from Italy, that you go to a trattoria or you go to a restaurant where it's a lot more social interaction with the owner, with the people, with the guests, and I really missed that. So I, I guess it was we had different interests, but um, and also we realised that we could earn money, then go to the restaurant and spend it, <laughs> or or we could spend the same amount of time doing this event, eat as well quite nicely, hopefully, <laughs> what we cooked, experiment somehow along the way, create some objects, and meet some new people. So in the end of the day, the time, you know, the equation would have been a similar thing. Just you obviously goes to earning money and then spending it. That way, the money was spent kind of experimenting, and so that for us was always an interesting way of, of spending our time. And the other three um, designers are graphic designers, so there was a lot of interest as well, you know, about the presentation of it, the invites, the menu the whole kind of aspects that goes around the table, not just the furniture and the chairs and tables, so the whole aspect of it and the menus. And, and you've carried on collaborating with almost all of those people ever since. I mean, uh, Mack and Geyser are part of a design collective called Abake or Obeke. We also run a little <laughs> publishing house together. So Mack and Geyser, I work very closely 
with the publishing house, probably also designing a book for of my work at the moment, a monograph. So I think this collaboration is still 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 going on, and I think it's still very important to me. And can you talk about how that influences your working practice in your studio now? Because in many ways, it has many of the elements of the food, the trattoria food experiment, sort of long-standing collaborators coming in and out, everybody getting together around food, which is always particularly delicious. Yeah, I mean, food still plays a very important part in everyday life. And for me, I always say the, the, the biggest kind of luxury I have in my in my practice, in my life, is to be able to cook and eat lunch with the people I work with. When I have time or when I'm very, really busy, I actually cook because it, it distracts me and it actually I can focus my, my, <laughs> my ideas again. But it's the, for me the biggest luxury I have to be able to sit down for an hour at lunchtime and yeah, to share a meal with the people I, you know, I, I care working with. And I, I also started to invite people, clients or be it people also journalists who come to town and want to meet me, actually invite them for lunch because it's a much better way to, to have a conversation. And it's not just about me, it's about other people asking questions. And, and I can ask him afterwards, you know, on my team. So, what do you think about the person? Should we work with? That, should we work? With that, should, should we work with that company? I think it's, it's, is it? You know, what, do you, what, what is your feeling? So, uh, in a way, they get kind of a, an in, the interview get interviewed by you know seven eight people sometimes without so realizing, not realizing, and yeah. So, if we go on to what was really your breakthrough project after all these years of fun, very vigorous experimentation and that was and it's in the the handout that you've all got a hundred chairs in a hundred days which um is still one of martino's most famous projects where he trawled around the streets of east london to find bits of furniture that had been abandoned there and then remade them into um, other forms of seating i mean some with recognizable components others not and then you organized a plinth free exhibition it was all on the floor from memory um, during the london design festival to exhibit it and then of course it was exhibited by nina in milan so that um, was really your big breakthrough project so did you plan it like that did you think it was time to do something ambitious coherent or was it something that had been percolating away for a long time? I, it all started actually with a collaboration with a friend of mine, Rainer, Rainer Spiel, uh, who, with whom I lived, worked, and also studied at the Royal College of Art. We got invited to the V&A Summer Fate, and it was an event that was held every summer till about 2010, maybe, by Claire and Sarah, Claire Cattrall and Sarah Gaventa. We used to run actually a interesting design uh, consultancy um, ahead of its time also because they will put together the interesting designers with uh, companies and do collaborations and basically make sure that designers got first of all a budget they got credit the right way they were given you know they were looked after in a way and they did many many um, events that they kind of where they tried to bring ideas together with people who had obviously either space or interest or cultural interest the village fate was basically uh, like any other fate where designers um, could have a little stall and they could make something and sell it. And it was kind of very ad hoc, uh, very kind of improvised. And me and Reiner turned up with a lot of scrap wood from the streets of East London, mostly from East London, with a big van full of bits of furniture that we'd taken apart. And we just put them out against the V&A walls in the garden. And you could choose your bits you wanted, and we would then make you a piece of furniture, we had kind of power tools there and, and so on. And so we did that and we call it furniture while you wait. We did this one year and then I actually injured myself doing that. Trilled into my hand, got to the hospital, fainted, got to the hospital. So the next year there's no more power tools. <laughs> so we thought, okay, then we do something else. We make the furniture beforehand in a similar style and we cook some food. Did the same thing again got banned again for health and safety reasons and a year after. <laughs> no more <laughs> food, no more hand tools, <laughs> no more food. So it was kind of getting a bit comical. Anyway, out of this, um, an exhibition, um, we got commi commissioned or asked to do uh, an exhibition with a friend of mine uh, who's got a reclamation yard called Vitruvius in North West London, Castle Rise. 
he's a great collector. Um, him, him and his wife Maria uh, studied architecture and again ahead of the time somehow started a reclamation yard, architectural salvage place. They would really, really go into building and strip anything out that they could find. Not just kind of very valuable, uh, let's say, um, architraves and so on, and fireplaces, but also really kind of, for example, Heathrow 2, the, the floor of Heathrow 2 was a beautiful uh, travertine floor, and they basically took the whole floor if, when it was refurbished. And then they would use it for the architectural projects. And they, for me, it was a really amazing place to go and see and, and to find bits of furniture and to get in, you know, inspired somehow. Because I hadn't really come across that in a way in Italy. Either it's antique or it's kind of antique shop, but the kind of the material that you could use and also the wood that came out of a specific building was very inspiring to me. Anyway, so he gave us a show and he said, you can use anything in my, in my big warehouse that is kind of material, not, not kind of obviously. So we did the show and um, with him, and until that moment, I think we didn't really realize that we were actually designing. You know, what we did at VNA was fun. There wasn't even a sense we were designing. We we had like a, you know an afternoon there, making some bits of furniture, and we never thought there was actually anything to do with our practice. When we did a second show, we realized why well, actually this is quite interesting because not only are we are we not needing any piece of paper because we're making it up as we go along we have something in the immediate, immediate kind of result to it. There wasn't kind of giving it drawing to someone or convincing someone this is a good idea. You, you made it as you, you know, you made it up as you're getting along and um, you could improvise. After this, Janice Blackburn, who is also a, a curator, how do you collector. collector, yes, patron of the arts and design. She invited us to the show at the Sotheby's, called Sotheby's Contemporary. It was a yearly show where she got, she put a lot of different crafts and, and art together. And we did this show called Ways to Taste. So it was kind of a lot of people who used waste in any form, be it raw material or be it kind of um, found objects. And after that show, Rainer left London and I was left alone with all these bits of furniture that we had gathered and, and found. And, and I kept collecting more and more. and. Um, because at that time I realized actually this was a lot more satisfying than trying to yeah, convince a client or convince anyone to, to commission you something. And then we did, uh, me and Maki worked on a book, my first book, and then Maki just said, well, since you want to do this project, let's just publish it. So let's call it 100 years and 100 days. That's what it's going to be. So once published, I was kind of forced to do this project. <coughs> So did you actually make 100 chairs in 100 days? Were you strict like that? Because, I mean, it's a fantastic It wasn't book. consecutive days. I mean, if you think it, was, it wasn't consecutive days. I think I probably did more than 100, given... And towards the end, um, there was kind of a, a real kind of drive to kind of get to the finishing line. And actually, it was maybe two or three chairs that got edited out in the end and didn't quite make it. But. Uh, but 98 chairs in 100 yeah. days doesn't quite have the yeah. ring. Um, 100, 104. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh, so more. More chairs, yeah. And it's still being exhibited, isn't it's it? It's still being exhibited. Um, it's traveling the world. It's been almost in all continents. God. That's been to Africa, sorry. Well, I'm sure its moment will come. Yeah, and um, the project somehow continues because the 100th chair is made in, in the location or in the city that the um, chairs are exhibited mm -hmm. so it's kind of for me also a way to kind of keep it going and yeah and I, th and I think it was for me first of all it was a research project I didn't think that it was ever going to be kept together as an exhibition my idea for the for the exhibition was they all going to be auctioned off when it came to the exhibition I thought mm, maybe not such a good idea to auction them off maybe I could barter so people could swap so we have one of the chairs has had a little slot <coughs> in, the, in the in the backrest it's like a box we had a little slip, paper slip, and you could write on it what you would swap it against. So what did, what did you get in the swaps? <coughs> all, all sorts. Um, uh, poetry written for me, a song written, other jail cards, food cooked, love, plenty of love, <laughs> all sorts. And then you applied a similar template to what would tend to be seen as more precious furniture because with the help of Nina you had all these components of Gio Ponti and Carlo Molino's 
furniture. So this was sort of 2007, 2008. And although I don't want to over-egg the parallels with Sohn, I think there is a neat parallel with the way he worked in that you treated that as a sort of research exercise into how Ponti and Molino had made their furniture or had it fabricated. And I mean, one of Sohn's many objectives in assembling the incredible collection here was so he could study it as a neoclassical architect. He wanted to study the forms and symbolism. So what did you learn during that, that process? Yeah, I think that was very much part of, of the project of, of actually, first of all, collecting the chairs from the streets that was already somehow um, a decision-making which chair you're going to be picking up. At the beginning you pick up everything and then as you kind of become a bit more of a fine collector, you know, you kind of make a decision based on is this going to be interesting to, to rework. And I think once you, once you start taking chairs apart, you, you learn a lot about the mythology and, and, and the design. I mean, really, I think when you cut, in, when you cut the chair in half, you, you, you understand a lot about how much thought, how much kind of detailing has gone into a chair. And, and I think that was interesting to me. And I think um, it was almost like kind of dissemination of something, you know, almost like a scientist would take something apart and, you know, in, in, in smaller parts and then we start kind of recomposing it. So with Molino, for example, who I would have thought would be an extraordinarily sophisticated fabricator mm. of, of his furniture, did that turn out to be the case? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there was, there was small details of, of the legs, you know, had a little brass conical insert. It wasn't just something you buy, you know, you buy off the shelf. It was specially turned. Also with Ponte, I mean, the, when you, the, the kind of uh, composites he used, even though it was plywood or blockwood, they were for the time, I mean, we talk about mid-60s, you know, um, very, very, very ahead of his time. I mean, it wasn't just some cheap kind of, it was very well kind of made, every detail, every screw, it was, I mean, the mirrors, because I used some, a lot of these were doors in a, in a hotel, from a hotel. I mean, the mirrors were like eight millimeter thick, you know, mirrors, proper kind of nicely beautiful chamfered and, you know, every corner and, and the, the holders were kind of, you know, stainless steel, kind of a left and a right one. It wasn't just one, it was a left and right version of it because they were so slightly rectangular. So they were all kind of hand milled and, you know, so it was, quite yeah, interesting to, to see that as well. And obviously you've carried on working <coughs> in an experimental way and also making bespoke pieces for individual clients and you've talked about the pleasure you get in doing that but you've also taken on much more orthodox industrial commissions and I think the first sort of mass manufactured product was the Wiener chair. Um, for Margis. So how have you responded to that very different form of practice? And that was launched in the classic Milan way with lots of PRing and promotional aplomb and no one knowing whether it would ever actually go into factory production. What was the experience like? Um, I guess I, I think the, a lot of companies that have approached me over the years have I've had probably more worries than I had about how, what they would do with me, you know. I mean, I remember having a conversation with Rolf Feilbaum from Vitra, and it was quite early on, it was like, maybe even before the 100 shares almost, he's saying, I don't know what I would do with you. <laughs> like, it's all interesting, but they, they try to understand what, how they could work, not just with your ideas, but also with you. And, and I guess Peratze from Maldives was very, Courageous, he's a very courageous man. <laughs> he did many things because he really believes in them, and he's not scared to challenge it. But it wasn't so different, I have to, I have to say, the, the the process because, of course, you need an idea first of all <laughs> that helps. But also, um, the way I work in my workshop uh, is that, or we as a team, we 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 work with materials. So you make a product, you make one piece. So again, I went to the company. I had a sketch, sent them a sketch, they made a prototype, I didn't like it. And I worked with them for two days in the, in the workshop, you know, bending and welding and, and making the chair kind of I wanted to, to make. So at the end of the day, it comes back again to, the, to this idea of translating, how can you best translate your ideas into an object? And then once you have the object, then, then the industry takes over. So that's in a way the luxury you have with an industry. 
that you kind of have to make a good prototype <laughs> and kind of get the sense over and then they take then they take it on and then they have their expertise and they're a lot easier than, than when you make things yourself because it is, <laughs> you, have to, you have to do everything from the beginning to the end. But it's also much riskier because the risk of the manu you slaving on the prototype and the manufacturer then distorting it for whatever reason oh yeah, there is into something you don't want is quite high. Yeah, so. there is always the surprise when you, when, you, when you obviously made the prototype and then you come back after months and then you see the first production piece and you're like, what have you done there? This wasn't agreed, you know, and it's little details that make a difference. So there is, yeah, it's a challenge. And one thing that's um, made your practice relatively unusual for a designer is the nimbleness with which you've had a very strong rapport with the art world and you've consistently exhibited in both design institutions and galleries and art institutions and galleries and collaborated with artists as often as you have designers without getting sort of tangled up in the presumed and perceived distinctions between the, the two. And um, so one project um, where this was very evident was probably one of your most prominent exhibitions, and that was your exhibition at the Serpentine Gallery, the Serpentine Sackler Gallery, which I think was 2014. So can you talk about that? Because again, there's a Sonian parallel because it was an exhibition of collections. Yeah, so I got asked by the Serpentine Gallery to act as a curator um, and to design a show about it. So design an exhibition about design. At crazily short notice, I, I seem to yeah, remember. Yeah, like three months time, with Christmas in between. Um, and it was the second series of, of this particular um, design focus. Constantine Richards did one three years prior to mine. So there wasn't really uh, much kind of to to look back at and say like what well, you know what what were the previous exhibitions? There was one exhibition um, that was kind of successful in a way that it it, it started a conversation. But I think for Constantine it wasn't so successful because he got a little stick for it because he did try, he did use plinth. He did. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you're absolutely he did, right. He did, <laughs> he did use plinth to exhibit design pieces, and, and and he was kind of basically making his part. Not not saying that design is art, but he was saying they have as much kind of these these industrial design pieces had as much um, focus and as much kind of energy put into it, and as much kind of much, as much sophisticated as it could be a sculpture. And they are beautiful. You know, they, he took parts of a of a car that was you know, beautiful design and beautiful kind of manufacture as well. And, but also more utilitarian things. More I mean, there was like a component, one of the storage components for an airplane. Yeah. And also I think he was trying to make a point that there was a lot of designers out there who, who work without having ever been credited. You know, they're kind of no-name designers who work for a company and do as much interesting work, not, not more interesting than people who obviously sign, you know, their work. So anyway, so I got asked to create this show and, and for me, I struggled with the idea that a lot of design museums show this kind of selection of the best of. So 2018, let's do a design show and then let's, let's look what the last year, last two years is the best of chairs, the best of tables, the best of mobile phones, the best of... For me, it was kind of, I don't know, never really interested me. Because again, there's so much missing, I think. The world is a much bigger place and much more exciting work. So I, I wanted to, first of all, mix also contemporary and historic pieces into it. So with the Hadron Nina as well, because she had an amazing collection of shelves, <laughs> I put together an exhibition about shelves that talk about the last 80 years, 90 years of design. So from, from 1920s onwards. And for me, this was kind of, this was the kind of backbone, backbone of the exhibition. But on these shelves, I asked friends, or people that I knew or wanted to get to know to lend me their collection. There wasn't necessarily a collection that had to be uh, a very precise and specific collection. It was more of a private collection, pieces that surrounds them. So there was kind of a big, big variety, like for example, Jemad Max have a huge pottery collection of uh, um, St. Ives pottery. And um, so they're kind of very personal in a sense, what they collect. but. They talk a lot about what happened exactly at that time, you know, throughout a span of 30, 40 years of design and making. So 
And there is other, for example, a Finnish, a Finnish glass designer, Oiva Toika, who every year designed a cube of glass. They say an artistic kind of interpretation of the year, so with beautiful glass inside. And again, these are not mass manufactured pieces, these are one-off pieces, but somehow, or some of them actually additions as well that he sold, but for me this was the world, and I wanted to kind of exhibit uh, worlds that people kind of represent and what inspires them. Or there was a um, um, collection of an uh, editor um, of Penguin books and Hamish Hamilton, you know, books, um, Simon, who, who every lunchtime, or every, whenever he's got time, he goes to Charing Cross and he buys secondhand books as an editor. And, but they all have a specific, specific interest, and a lot of them are about also the covers and the design. So it was an interesting kind of array of uh, selection of of book designs. And it was a fantastic insight into different interpretations of, of design and how people had integrated them into their lives. And then you did another project for the Serpentine, which was their annual contribution to the Milan Furniture Fair at La Renascente, the department store on Piazza del Duomo in Milan. And this is one of my favorite of all your projects in a state of okay. repair. Um, where you literally invited repairers, makers, craftspeople, bookbinders, 3D printers, cobblers from all over Milan to ply their trade there, and people were fascinated by it. So yeah, so um, that came with the exhibition of Serpentine. It was kind of a, a scam for the Serpentine. <laughs> so I had to, I could do, I could do the create the show, but at the same time, they had the project going on in Milan with the Shente. So. I thought I'd take, it on, I'd take on a challenge in a way, <laughs> and <laughs> um, luckily I did. You know, I, I didn't agree to it because I, I think, for me, in hindsight, it was it's a very important project. And uh, well, and also in a way, it was a, the um, the Milan Furniture Fair is all about selling furniture, and yeah. um, this obviously was a very different approach to objects, our relationship to them, our usage of them. So yeah, so the title of the show I created, The Serpentine, was called uh, Design is a State of Mind. So again, about not just what the objects are, it's what we make out of those objects. And I think that's quite evident in this building as well. People coming in here and, and actually forming their own story. Because the, the story or whatever it was, we, we're not quite sure. We tr we're speculating. <coughs> Historic, in hindsight, we, we speculate. So I think I wanted to do a show that people could go to, a contemporary show people could go to and formulate their own kind of world within that and live with that and didn't have to wait until history had kind of <laughs> made a thing. So for me the, the Milan thing was it was about a certain state and what better to kind of to manifest it with uh, in a state of repair, you know. So one thing I did I put on the on the building a big neon light and that was that said in a state of repair and that was also a message I was quite surprised they actually did it because it actually it's a quite negative thing for a department store to to have a <laughs> so big neon sign on instead of repair. It means, it means you're basically you're broken. You kind of well, most sure department stores yeah. are in a constant you're not state of sure repair. What you, you're not quite sure what you're doing. <laughs> so they agreed to that, and um, yeah, we had um, twelve different um, crafts people who would um, repair uh, objects for free. So you could bring your shoes, you could bring your your bag, you bring your coat or your jumper, you bring your bicycle and your book, you know, your toys. So the artisans would prepare it and during the opening hours of the shop. And has what's been the sort of legacy of of that? I mean, to my knowledge, you haven't replicated the project anywhere else, or did you keep in contact with the artisans and the fixers to see what had happened to them as a result? I'm, I'm still in contact with the the bookbinder. And the chair cane I've seen, I went to visit once. I've been asked to replicate this a couple of times, but I think it was never quite enough time. It wasn't enough time and enough focus. I think what was great about it, there was so many people there and it was a real buzz about it, in about it. I'm still waiting for the right, the right project to come along to... Actually, no, it's not true. I actually did one. Sorry, I've forgotten about it. The British Art Show invited me to take part in, in, in and it was in four different cities through UK throughout the year. And I've actually um, engaged again a chair caner, always different ones, and a bookbinder. 
to again design a book cover with a friend of Gemma's and so she designed this book covers screen printed them and then you could choose different colors and you could bring your book and then and then the book binder would, would bind it you can be there you could help actually in Rome as well and in, in the Italian edition of the British art show the Quadrinale again book binders you could right. go there and have your book repaired I made a table as well I designed the table and the, and the kind of and again, with the chair caning, you could go and you could learn about how, how to cane a chair. So that's kind of been going on, but yeah, I'm still waiting for... The big one. Another one. <laughs> and so what are you working on now? What are the key projects that you'll be unveiling in a year or um, so's time? I'm probably doing something for Milan. <laughs> But Nina Milan last week talked talked about Salone 2019. Um, that's in the process. I'm um, I'm actually working on a on a restaurant at the moment in the Italian Alps and the Dol on the Dolomites, top of a mountain, very beautiful place. And I'm working very closely with the chef, um, local chef. I've been giving carte blanche to to basically furnish the whole all of it. So it's a glass box designed by a local architect, quite minimalist, you know, glass mm -hmm. box and. Um, I designed the, the fabric for the ceiling, uh, fabric for the upholstery, the floor, the chairs, the tables, the every, everything, everything that, that goes in basically. Not quite a cutlery, but yeah. So um, I'm also working a lot of commissions, private commissions. It's quite varied in a way. And I was working with Magis again on, an, on the, the chair that we talked about, the vineyard chair that's in the publication. It was never as comfortable as it should have been, and we working on actually on a, on a remake and extending the family in a smaller family stores and so on. And yeah. do you think that it would be more or less difficult for a designer to develop the same kind of practice if they were starting now as it was for you when you left the Royal College of Art? 20 years ago. I mean, you graduated into a very different economy in London. Space, workspaces were more plentiful and far less expensive. Um, and you also graduated into a design culture that, although you couldn't have predicted it, was going to be intellectually dynamic as well as economically dynamic and was going to expand into new terrain in all sorts of different ways do you feel that actually someone graduating now sort of inherits all of that so that's easier or whether it gave you the freedom to define things in your own way yeah i mean i always thought i i was always five years too late but wherever i i went you know um i went to vienna started in vienna and i thought it was five years too late because there was a certain kind of bus about that was five years too late. I went to Milan, I thought it was five years too late because by the late 90s, Milan was somehow on its way out. Now it's got the, got the kind of re, uh, uh, rebirth. But At least you arrived here before Brexit. I came, I, yeah, <laughs> just about. Uh, I came to London and I thought already, wow, it's already quite tight. You know, it was really, um, and, and that kind of generation of Jasper and Michael married and, and, um, Constantly, you know, still was in London, you know, that I kind of missed that train, so I was kind of thinking. But then, I guess what was different that when I, it took me, I guess, seven years to when I, from when I graduated to when I really started having my first shows with the 100 chairs. And it was seven interesting years, and I think for me they were the most exciting years in a way, because there was um, obviously very... I didn't have a name, but also it meant I had space and time to do things. And, and also uh, you were teaching, so you I could support yourself well. on that. I was teaching at some point, but also um, I felt like I had time to mature. I think there's a lot more pressure on, I think, now on, on graduates to to be something, to, you know, if you, if you graduated and you're not in a magazine or well, magazine's not even important anymore, if you not have 100,000 hits on your Instagram, you didn't really quite cut it. And I guess it was a slower process. And I had time also to kind of create a, a practice in terms of a workshop. It was always my dream um, when leaving the RCA that I wanted to have a workshop where I could work a space so I could create and be creative in. And I guess it, it also enabled me to set up um, tools, you know? I mean, that's, it's not just a space. You also need tools. If you make furniture, you need, need a, more than just a saw and a plane. So I guess I did some commercial jobs and I made all kinds of stuff. I mean, horrible stuff that I 
don't even remember reminded me of you know for all kinds of people uh, particularly proud of but I did it and I had to do it to survive but it did it did kind of teach me to have two feet on the ground to understand about how actually you go about about the commission how much you're going to be paid that you kind of learn how to how to run a business how to write an invoice how to write an estimate how to kind of actually do a calculation and how to actually you know and I think it gave me time to do that and it gave me time to do mistakes and and also time to again like hundred chairs have time to think about the project that one day may, might become something so I think it's different now for, for I think graduates and young designers but I think they have new challenges, exciting. I mean, you know, it goes much faster, so they can communicate to a much bigger audience, much, much quicker. They have less space, I guess, but we also know sometimes less space creates different, I don't know, necessities, and it's Brexit looming as well. But again, maybe Brexit, Brexit will give us another, you know, so I think every generation, every, every decade has got its own challenge. I, think. I couldn't really say it's better or worse. I mean, I think it's still exciting, I think, to see young people doing their own work and doing it very different now. And I think there's always, there's always the question, why would you do another chair, another object? There's so much out of there. Maybe, maybe we have to think different, that it's not just about creating something, reinventing the wheel and creating something that stands up as a new utopia in a way, <laughs> you know? But maybe it's about kind of working more with what is there and what, what, what the contemporary with the with the history and kind of mi mixing as well. I guess maybe a new form of postmodernism, <laughs> reinventing a way that kind of mixes things together that become a new way of looking at it. Thank you so much, Martino. You've been incredibly generous to be interrogated in this way. And it's wonderful to hear you look back um, on your working practice and its evolution. I can't wait to read the book. And so I'd like to say a big thank you to him, but also to the Sony Museum and their staff for allowing us to come here. It's such a privilege to be in this extraordinary place, which has inspired so many designers for, for so long. So a huge thank you to them and to all of you for coming. Thank you. Thank you.